Turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll just skip the first 10 chapters. You did hear, right, about the elderly couple that after years of arguing about who was responsible for making the coffee in the morning, the wife finally says, the Bible clearly says that the husband is supposed to make the coffee. <laughs> Hebrews. <laughs> it's a really old joke. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And, though, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek after him. Hebrews chapter 11 is the great discussion about faith. It is a magnificent chapter that launches into a very brief discussion of a lot of different people. How Abraham lived by faith. How Moses lived by faith. How others lived by faith. We are in fact starting the book of Hebrews today, so you can turn back to chapter 1. The interesting thing about the book of Hebrews is it has no introduction at all. Um, so we need to get the introduction out of the way so we can start the discussion of the book. It is a letter, we think. It doesn't start like a, a usual letter. It doesn't start like one of Paul's letter that says, Paul, an apostle of God, to the church at this, this is what I've got to say to you. It doesn't have any of that, but it does end like a letter. It ends with a greetings to specific people, etc. So there are those who believe that it is in fact a sermon that was written down and sent to a church with a ending tacked on, hello, how are you doing? Because it is a very dense, thick argument to answer a specific question. It is a sermon. We might as well get it out of the way. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Anybody want to take a guess? Your guess would be as good as mine. Don, who wrote the book of Hebrews? His, his vote is for Apollos. Why, what, what evidence do we have for that? None. There are many in the early church who believe that Paul had, in fact, written the book of Hebrews. Uh, the problem with that is that it uh, doesn't look like any of, other, any of the other letters that Paul wrote. 
And it doesn't say Paul, an apostle of God, in the first sentence. Now, it does share the theology with Paul. So what we're going to speculate is that whoever did write it was an acquaintance or had strong knowledge of Paul and his teaching. In fact, we're going to see in the greetings at the end, you know, say hello to Timothy. We know that Paul hung around with Timothy. It was probably the same Timothy, so probably they all knew each other. But we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. In fact, when you get to the 3rd or 4th century, even the early church fathers were admitting God only knows who wrote this book. Second question, who was it written to? We don't know. We don't know which specific group in which specific location it was written. There's a discussion later in the book about say hello to the people in Italy. But we're not sure whether that means it was written to people in Italy or from a group of people who had left Italy and were writing, we don't know. So we don't know who wrote it. We don't know the specific congregation that it was written to. What do we know? We do know why it was written. It was written to Jewish Christians, Christians who had been part of the Jewish religion and had accepted Christ as the Messiah. It is to the Hebrews. So they were Christians, and they had been Jews, and at some point, life was getting difficult. They could be persecuted for being Christians. They could be persecuted for being ex-Jews. They could be persecuted for a lot of different things. But they were beginning to experience persecution, and in their minds, you know what happened. This isn't working. Whatever it was I was following wasn't working. I either need to go back to being a good Jew... Or I need to just blow off this whole religion thing to begin with and have nothing to do with it. They were in the position where they were being tempted to fall away. And the author of the book of Hebrews is going to say, don't do that. Chapter 11, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. He is going to encourage, admonish them, that by faith, those who came before you believed God and it was credited to them as righteousness. What did it just say about Enoch? Before he was no more, he didn't die. Before he was no longer around on this earth, he pleased God because of his faith. And the author is going to admonish them you need to do the same. And at the beginning, how he's going to do that is by explaining to them that there's nothing better. There's no one on earth. There's no one that has ever been that is better than Jesus Christ. If we start the book of Hebrews, this is the idea that you need to have in your head at the beginning. Jesus is better than fill in the blank. 
Jesus is better than the prophets. That's today's lesson. Jesus is better than the angels. That may be today's lesson. It may be next week's lesson. Jesus is better than Moses. And Moses was pretty hot stuff to a good Jew, right? Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than the sacrifices. Jesus is better than any priest that has ever walked the earth. Jesus is better. Now, what does this have to say to us today? The same thing. Most of you were probably not Jews converted to Christianity. Probably not. We've had those in here before. That's great. But all of us, at some point in our life, have thought, you know what? This isn't working. This just isn't working. Something's wrong. And if you haven't had it, I have. If you haven't had it, somebody you know has had it. That thought, you know, I tried that. It just didn't work for me. I'm going back to plan B or plan C or something else. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is going to tell us there's nothing to go back to. And in fact, later we're going to have a discussion that's going to blow our minds about can you lose your salvation? And if you lose your salvation, can you get it back? I, I can't tell you how many people I've had in this class come up and say, can you explain this verse in Hebrews? I said, no. I don't know what you're talking about. We'll get to that, and we'll explain it. In fact, we may explain it in multiple different ways. How about that? So, we're going to start the book of Hebrews, and we're going to work our way through it. When was the book of Hebrews written? Let's see. We didn't know who wrote it. We didn't know who they wrote it to. Why would we know when it was written? It was probably written before 70 A.D., what happened in 70 A.D.? The Romans destroyed Jerusalem. And in the text, when the author is talking about the temple, the worship, and all this stuff, if the temple had been destroyed, there would have been the expectation that he would have mentioned it. Because if anything, it would have reinforced his position that Jesus is better than all of that. Since that wasn't mentioned, the thought is that it was written sometime before 70 A.D. There are some verses that would lead you to believe that the author was not personally acquainted with Jesus Christ because he's going to say the things we have heard, as if you've heard the gospel, I've heard the gospel, this is why we believe it. It is just interesting. There's also other interesting tidbits thrown throughout this. When he quotes the Old Testament, which he does a whole lot, he isn't quoting the Hebrew Old Testament. He is, teach, he is quoting the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Remember after the Assyrians and the Babylonians had wiped out the Jews, a large Jewish community fled down to Alexandria. And they were in basically a Greek community. And at some point in there, they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. It is the Greek Septuagint. Septuagint, there were 70 authors that worked on it. And that became the standard version of the Old Testament. 
So whoever is writing the book of Hebrews had access to the Greek Old Testament. And you see that a little bit in the style of the verses that he quotes. All that makes sense? If you've been in here for a while, you know that I don't really like introductions. I just like to get started. Verse 1, chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Let's just stop right there. Here the author is talking to a congregation, and he says, in the past, God talked with us through the prophets. What is a prophet? You know, you and I oftentimes think that a prophet is somebody who predicts the future. And oftentimes that tr that's true. But a prophet is someone who speaks, no, who receives a message from God and proclaims it to the people. That could be about the future. It could be, here are the things that are going to happen. It could be, you've done something wrong, you need to straighten up. Remember our lesson several weeks ago? Nathan, the prophet, came to David, who had just fooled around with Bathsheba, and said, you're guilty. He didn't prophesy. There was some of that in there. But he was admonishing David on behalf of God. A prophet is someone who gets a message from God and says, here, this is what God is saying. There are those today who would argue that a teacher is a prophet because I am taking the word of God and I'm sharing it with you. Eh, I might have a little trouble with that because the prophet idea is that somehow God has spoken directly to me. And I will tell you right up front, I am not a prophet. Okay? To the best of my knowledge, God has never given me new revelation. In fact, in the Old Testament, the test for a prophet was very strict. It went like this. If I stand up for, to you and say, God has told me that, pick a name, is going to win the next election, and that person does not win the next election, you, you collectively are to pick up large rocks and throw them at me until I'm dead. This is a pass-fail exam. That was the test to be a prophet. Now, we also know, though, that the world was full of false prophets. It was full of people who would come to you and say, God has told me you need to give me a hundred bucks. And guess what? Sometimes people would give them a hundred bucks. Because who's going to argue with God? I will contend that the world is full of false prophets today. The world is full of people who want to tell you what you need to know, and they want to, you to believe that God has spoken directly to them. That's why we are admonished 
to continually go back to the Scripture to see if what that prophet is claiming matches the Scripture. If I ever say anything that contradicts the Scripture in any way, you're supposed to call me out on it. And trust me, it's happened. I've told you before, I get these phone calls on Sunday afternoon from Ted. Hmm. <laughs> That's the way it's supposed to work. That's not flawed. That's the way it's supposed to work. Because I am not a prophet. But God has called prophets. He has called prophets who would speak on behalf of God to the people. God, prophet, people. Got it? In the past, the author of Hebrews is telling us God has talked to us through prophets. A very high, very influential position. Also, I might add, a rather tough position. Because if I tell you that God thinks you're a lousy sinner, you're liable to want to kill me. And guess what? The prophets died. We're going to see this in Hebrews chapter 11. Because sometimes we don't want to hear what God wants to tell us. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Prophets, Son. This is going to begin the discussion of why Jesus Christ is better than everything that came before. Now, don't get me wrong. This does not mean the Son is right and the prophets are wrong. The Son, well, we'll talk about that. But the prophets were doing exactly what God told them to do. It's just that Jesus is categorically, qualitatively, on a different level and plane than the prophets. I'm Amos. I'm Isaiah. I'm Jeremiah. I'm Micah, Nahum, Abaca. You figure it out. I'm Lamentation. Oh, wait, that's not a prophet. That's Jeremiah. He wrote it, okay? I'm one of those prophets, and I am doing what God told me to do. I have a book in the Bible with my name on the title. Isn't that cool? But Jesus is so much better. That's what we're going to talk about. Jesus is different, and he's better. What we're going to see is everything in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. If it wasn't pointing to Jesus, it was probably pointing the wrong direction. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in those last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. 
What does this tell us about Jesus? It tells us everything about Jesus. What was Jesus doing before he came to earth? He was creating the world, and he was holding the world together by his word. Let's jump, if you would, over to John chapter 1. Go backwards a few. John, while presenting the life of Christ, begins at the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the light That life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. (sighs) Jumping down, who does it say that word is? It is Jesus Christ. The first question that we almost skipped over, but we mentioned it briefly, was how does God communicate with us? But the most important question, in fact, we could just stop here for a couple of months, but we won't, is who is or who was Jesus? Your theology is going to be determined by who you think Jesus is or was. Your philosophy of life is going to be determined by who you think Jesus is or was. Everything about your life is either going to be an acceptance that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, or He was, well, a really good guy. I told you I had a professor once. She taught occasionally at the Universalist Unitarian Church. Nice lady. She liked Jesus. She liked Jesus, and she liked Socrates both of whom were killed because of their teaching. Both of them were killed and are dead. End of story. Who is Jesus? If you're a good Mormon, you believe that Jesus is the biological child of God the Father. He is a human being just like you are in the same way that God the Father was a human being just like you and I are. If you're a good Muslim, who do you think Jesus was? Jesus was a prophet. He was a prophet just like Muhammad was a prophet, except Muhammad was the last prophet. But he was a prophet. Abraham was a prophet. Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was speaking on behalf of God to the people, and we, the foolish Christians, messed up all of his teachings. Okay? He was a good man who was or was not doing what God would have him to do. Now, if you're Bertrand Russell, you think that Jesus was a lousy human being because he was teaching all this stupid stuff. 
If you're Nietzsche, you think he was a weak man because he taught all this stuff about forgiveness. The nerve of him. What or who do you think Jesus is or was? I've told you I used to have a copy of a sermon written by a pastor of a large church in our community. The title of the sermon was, Who Was Jesus? And he was a great example of how we are to live our lives. He was a great example of how we are to help take care of the poor. He was a great example of how we are to learn morality. He was a great example, and that was it. The Bible doesn't teach that. If you're Thomas Jefferson... You're going to go through the New Testament, and you're going to cut out the pieces you like. You're going to paste them in your book, and that's going to be your Bible, and you're going to get rid of all that miracle stuff. You're going to get rid of all that other. You're going to think he was a great ethical teacher. Is that what Jesus was? The author of the book of Hebrews is going to say no. Yes, he may have been a great ethical teacher. He was, by the way. Go read the Sermon on the Mount, and tomorrow, practice it. Okay? Just do that. He was a great ethical teacher. But that's not why he came. That's not who he is. And from henceforth, I will use the word is, not was. Because the book of Hebrews is going to tell us where he was at the beginning. It's going to tell us what he did when he was here. And it's going to tell us what he is doing right now. Right now. He is interceding on your behalf and my behalf. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now, Here's an easy question. You can answer this question because this one's easy. What does Jesus own? Everything. He is the heir of all things. Elsewhere in the scripture, we talk about us being co-heirs with Christ, but this is the heir He is the guy who owns everything. Question, what gives him the right to own everything? First off, we're going to get there. First off, the question is, what gives his father the right to give it to him? Okay. The answer, now, he created everything. He created it. Therefore, he has authority and jurisdiction over everything everything. Now, let's try to make this a little simpler because our minds get messed up. You ready for this? Who owns that chair? Christ Chapel Bible Church owns that chair. But who really owns that chair? God, Jesus. Let's make this even more complicated. Who owns this person sitting in this chair? Not Christ Chapel Bible Church. Not the state of Texas. 
not the country of the United States. Jesus Christ owns that person. Now, I'm going to not do this, but let's say sitting in this chair was a good old-fashioned pagan. You ready for this? Who owns that person? The same person that owns this person. Guess what? They don't know it. Are you ready for this? This is, this is, who owns your grandkids? Who owns your great-grandkids? Who owns your children? Who owns your stuff? Who owns fill in the blank? God made Jesus the heirs of all things. So you take the stuff that God has given you and you use it for your own ends and you're stealing God's stuff. Now, guess what? God has given you that stuff to use. The scripture talks about us being stewards of the stuff that God has given us. That stuff is stuff, and that stuff are family, that stuff are relationships, that stuff is influence, that stuff is power. God has made you a steward of that. But we've got to get back to the fact that Jesus is the owner of all the stuff. By right. Not because he stole it from somebody. This isn't the golden compass where God is some old guy that doesn't have any power or influence. This is the real world, and God made Jesus the heir of all things. Remember, in times past, God spoke through the prophets. The prophets were given a message from God. They didn't own that message. They didn't own anything. In fact, most of them were dirt poor. Most of the prophets in the Old Testament had a pretty lousy life. But God spoke through them, and now he is speaking through the Son. Not just some random person, the Son who is the heir of all things. Yes, ma'am. Her question is, does that negate the need for any prophets? And uh, I would, as a general rule, say yes, okay? I'm not going to ever say God can't give a message to you, okay? I do know that with the closing of the Scripture, that is the standard by which all future prophecies are to be judged, okay? So I would say probably yes, but I'm not going to say God couldn't, okay? Well, whether God, you know, sends some prophet the day before Armageddon and says, you know what, this is it, <laughs> he can do that, okay? Yeah, that comes later. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Why, we touched upon this, 
Why does Jesus, why does God have the right to control the world in which we live? Because he spoke it into existence. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Maybe we should just jump ahead to that and get into all the difficulties out of the way to begin with. He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. If you want a Christian doctrine that confuses most of us most of the time, it is the doctrine of the Trinity. If you're a good Muslim, you believe that Christians are tri-theist. We believe in three gods. We are not monotheist. We believe in God the Father. That's one God. We believe in God the Son. That's another God. And we believe in God the Holy Spirit. That's a third God. And they, good Muslims, being good monotheists, view that as heresy. Well, we are not tri-theist. We believe in one God. But we believe in one God in three persons. Let that crank a little bit and crog the brain. My good Catholic friend has told me on numerous occasions if he were going to attack Christianity, he would just ask everybody to explain the Trinity to them and watch their heads explode. Okay? God is the Father. God is the Son. God is the Holy Spirit. You ready for this? But the Father is not the Son. And the Father is not the Holy Spirit. And the Son is not the Holy Spirit. They are three persons in one being. They are a trinity. One being, three persons. And when we look at Jesus Christ, we see that he is the imprint, the exact DNA, if there was such a thing in the spiritual realm, and there's not. We're not good Mormons, remember? Okay. He is the exact imprint of the Father. He is the same in power. He is the same in capabilities. He is the same in characteristics. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Your head's about to explode, right? Didn't Jesus have to ask the Father's permission to do stuff? Wasn't there stuff the Son couldn't do? Didn't He say, I don't know when I'm coming back. Only God the Father knows that. Didn't He say that? Yes, He did. And we are told that when Christ came to earth, when Jesus came to earth, when the Son came to earth and took on human form, He set aside His aspects of God so that He could be with us. But that didn't mean He didn't have them. He, under the direction of the Father, chose not to use them. 
This has always fascinated me because sometimes he uses it. Sometimes his omnipotence just pops out of the box. And those are just amazing to me. He's in a boat, asleep, and the storm comes up, and the disciples are panicking. You would too, right? I mean, we're talking small boat, big waves. And they're panicking, and they go and they grab him and they say, Don't you care? Question, what did they expect Jesus to do? I know exactly what they expected him to do. They expected him to panic like they were. They expected him to grab a bucket and start bailing water. And you know, you just know this, right? Jesus is waking up. What's up? And he looks around and he goes, storm, stop. And then he goes back to bed. Because guess what? The storm stopped. That is not the act of a human being. That is the act of God. It is a characteristic of God, the omnipotence, all-powerful nature of God, that Jesus, at that point, under the direction of the Father, took off the shelf and said, just in case you're curious, there it is. And there are times when he knew things that he probably shouldn't have known. While you were over there sitting under that tree, I saw you. That tree's a long, long way away. A long way away. Let's get a little omniscience off that shelf and go, huh, see this? I've got this too. Jesus is fully human. Every characteristic that you have, he had, and he is fully God. Every characteristic that God has, he has. We're going to see this in the book of Hebrews. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us, but we have a high priest who was tempted in every way that you were, yet he didn't sin. Why did he not use his God given abilities more while he was here on earth because he did want to show you and me how to live our lives. Remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus is being tempted by Satan to sin. Jesus could have thumped him and he would have collapsed. But instead, he quoted scripture Why did he do that? To show you and me that the way to handle temptation is by quoting scripture. Jesus is the exact imprint of God. In times past, he spoke to us through prophets. Isaiah, great prophet. Right? Big book in the Bible. His name at the top. Isaiah was a human being. Jeremiah, human being. Moses, human being. Shall I go on? Micah, 
Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, you fill in all the rest. Every one of them is human beings. And that's how God spoke to us in times past. But now, He speaks through us, to us, through His Son, who is the exact imprint of the Father. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The disciples ask, show us the Father. What does he say? You've seen me. You've seen the Father. He is the radiance in human form of the glory of God. Okay, good Jewish Christian convert, what are you going back to? If you're leaving this, what are you going back to? A prophet, a human being. Great guys, great guys, but just guys. Forget the Jewish convert. You, me, today. If we're leaving Jesus, what are we going back to? Something that's not Jesus. It isn't, here's Jesus, and here's four or five other equal alternatives. What the author of the book of Hebrews wants us to understand above everything else is here's Jesus and here's everything else. And that isn't saying, don't, don't think that that's saying that all this other stuff is bad. The prophets were doing exactly what God told them to do. Isaiah was prophesying the coming of the Messiah. He was writing all that great stuff so that Handel could turn it into great music. But they're just human beings. And Jesus isn't just a little bit better human being. He isn't just Mother Teresa up one more notch. No! He's categorically different. He is the exact radiance of the Father. We're going to get to Moses here in a chapter or so. But you remember, Moses would go talk to God. That was really cool. I don't know about you. I've never had a one-on-one, face-to-face, well, face-to-back with God. Okay? But when Moses did that, He came back and he scared the bejeebers out of the people because his face glowed. Why? Because he was in some strange fashion radiating the glory of God. He had been in the presence of God. Now we see later that he covered up his face so the people wouldn't see the radiance. But then he covered up his face so the people wouldn't see that the radiance was going away. Yeah, we'll talk about him a whole bunch, but not for about five months. (laughs) 
Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. What does God look like? You know, you can, in one of my classes this week that I taught, we talked about the Italian Renaissance. And we talked about, who was it? Michelangelo painting the picture on top of the Sistine Chapel, and you have God extending his hand. You've seen the picture, right? God looks like a really tough guy, big, great abs, whatever. Let me tell you what God looks like. Jesus Christ. We haven't seen God the Father. We have seen Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, the glory of God is presented to us. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I race through that because that's complicated. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What is it that holds the universe together? I know what it is. Go study quantum mechanics and you'll figure it out. And if you understand quantum mechanics, you're a lot smarter than I am. Gravitational forces, that's what holds the universe together. You know, this body and this body, you can calculate the force based on the distance and the mass of the two bodies and how much influence, and that's all cool and wonderful stuff. What is it that holds the universe together? What holds the universe together is the fact that today God decided, Jesus Christ decided to hold it together. That's it. G.K. Chesterton, I'm not agreeing with this position, I just think it's interesting. G.K. Chesterton says there aren't really any universal natural laws. It's just the fact that God every day wakes up and says, I think I'll see another sunset today. That one's cool. Let's do it again tomorrow. And the next day, and the next day. Why isn't the world as we know it worse than it is? God. Why do things not fall apart more than they are? God. Why do relationships work at times? God. Why do we fill in the blank? What is it that holds the universe together? You see, if you're a good deist, and some of our founding fathers were good deists, they believed God had created the universe like a clockmaker would make a clock. And then he wound up that clock and he set it on the table and he stepped back and he watched the clock. Tick, tick, tick. That's a deist. God does not interject into it because he doesn't need to. He made a really good clock. The scripture does not teach that. The scripture says the only reason you get talk after tick is because God says put a talk after the tick. That's the only reason. The clock doesn't tick tock one more time if God doesn't say do it. What does that mean? In olden days, God spoke through the prophets. Great guys, great people, doing exactly what God told them to do. But today, 
He speaks to us through His Son, who is the radiance, the imprint, the creator, and the sustainer of the world that we know today. Guess what? This is better than that. What is the point of all of this? This is better than that. So, you, me, Christians throughout history, if I'm going to leave this, where am I going to go? And that's what we're going to see in the book of Hebrews. I can leave this. I can walk away from it. I could walk out that door and never come back. But what am I going back to? Do I really believe that here's Christianity and here's Mormonism and here's something else and here's secular humanism and I'm sitting here in my autonomous, rational nature thinking that I can pick through equal things. Like I go to the ice cream store and I look at 20 different flavors and I pick one. And the book of Hebrews is going to tell us that's not the way it works. If you want to use that analogy, and I wouldn't, but if you wanted to, you walk into the ice cream store and there's, we talked about this last week and I got in trouble for it. There's the Bluebell homemade vanilla ice cream. And there's dog poop, and there's arsenic, and there's something else that will kill you, and there's something else that will kill you, and there's something else that will kill you. And the question, I said it's a horrible analogy. The question is, if I leave the Bluebell homemade vanilla ice cream, I'm not making equal choices. Everything else is bad. We, you and I, our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren are making the choice to go after something else. And the lesson of Hebrews is there's nothing, something else. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have spoken through the Son. I pray, Lord, that we too would seek after Jesus and that we, by faith, would trust in you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.